millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Late last week, Ethiopia's federal government announced what it called a humanitarian truce in its fight against forces from the country's northern Tigray region. Today we're going to look at whether that announcement can help end a war that over the past almost year and a half has torn the country apart. In late June, Tigrayan forces pushed federal Ethiopian soldiers out and kept going from Tigray into neighboring Amhara and Afar and on toward the capital, Addis Ababa. But Abi's forces pushed back. Bolstered by drones, they recaptured towns under Tigrayan control. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed deployed federal troops against Tigray's forces late in 2020. Since then, the balance of forces swung back and forth. At first, federal forces, together with those from Eritrea and from Ethiopia's Amhara region, which borders Tigray, pushed back Tigray rebels, capturing its regional capital, Mekele. Tigray's forces subsequently regrouped recaptured Mekele and pushed south toward Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. In November last year, it looked as though they might even seize Addis and topple Abi himself. But in another about-face, federal troops, replenished by a mass mobilization of Ethiopians and with new military hardware, pushed rebels back, mostly into their Tigrayan heartlands. The war is believed to have caused deaths of tens of thousands of people and displacement of millions. The World Food Programme warned earlier this year that three-quarters of Tigris' population of six million are using extreme coping strategies to survive, and more than a third are suffering an extreme lack of food. After 16 months of war in northern Ethiopia, Tigrayan rebels agreed to a ceasefire following the government of Ethiopia's call for an indefinite humanitarian truce Thursday. Since the latest federal offensive, front lines have been largely static. But the blockade of Tigray has persisted, contributing to a humanitarian crisis that has left as many as 700,000 people in famine-like conditions. Eritrean forces hold areas in Tigray's west and northeast. Amhara forces still control disputed areas in western Tigray. 
There have been signs that Abiy is backing away from his early aim of crushing the leadership of the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF, the former ruling party of Ethiopia. There's been direct contract between military commanders on both sides. Abiy released a handful of veteran Tigrayan leaders from jail in January. Then, on the 25th of March, his government announced a unilateral truce, ostensibly aimed at getting aid into Tigray. But much about the truce is uncertain. Eritrean and Amhara forces are not part of it. The government hasn't mentioned lifting its blocks on telecoms, electricity and banking services in Tigray, which all contribute to food insecurity. So can the truce help end a war that last year probably killed more people than any other conflict worldwide, or at least ease the suffering? Or is it just a pause before fighting starts up again? We're going to talk about this with Will Davison, Crisis Group's Ethiopia expert. Will, welcome back on the podcast. Hi, Richard. Hi, Naz. And thank you very much for having me back on your show. So, Will, what should we make of this so-called humanitarian truce? I mean, it's the first time, from what I understand, since hostilities broke out, that both sides have expressed any willingness to, to halt fighting. Do you hold out much hope that it can either improve things on the ground or sort of marks the beginning of steps towards ending the war? Yeah, thanks, Richard. I think um, you know, for some of the reasons stated in your, your intro and, and the question, I think cautious optimism um, is, is reasonable here. I think that sort of direct contact we had between the military leaders um, is significant progress in the context of a war where there's been no real peace process of any sort to speak of. Um, it does seem, and you know, all, all the indications from... Um, you know, those who've, um, you know, aware of the prime minister's thinking suggest that he has pivoted in, in the way that you suggest. Um, however, um, what we haven't seen so far is any actual implementation of aid delivery. Um, I, I'm told that, um, you know, tr- trucks should be leaving the Afar capital tomorrow to head to, to, to Mekele. So we have to see if they get through and then if that is consistently scaled up. Afar is a is a region to the east of Tigray, right? That Tigrayan forces had had sort of pushed into. Yes, they pushed into in in, in January and and before that. Um, and the significance is that that is the sole um, humanitarian land corridor that's open at the moment. Um, all the others are closed. You're creating this blockade um, on on Tigray. Um, and ever since mid December, you know, no trucks have got in. Um, and that's despite the Tigray forces having withdrawn inside Tigray. And then we've seen this sort of some positive signals ever since then. Um, so the, the blockade, in effect, is still in place. So first, we have to see that overcome with consistent aid delivery. Um, then if that happens, you know, hopefully the parties will regain some trust and, and build from there and start tackling some of the, the really thorny issues that are in the way of a successful peace process. But the Tigrayans have reciprocated the truce, the announcement of the truce from the government? Yes, again, like quite quite cautiously, you know, pending delivery of, of aid, their statements have also been a little bit confusing, but essentially they're respecting a cessation of hostilities. But the vital thing, again, is is aid delivery. Um, they've expressed concern at the lack of um, that or the failure of that so far. And then there is quite a lot of like worrying claim and, and counterclaim about this issue of you know, whether the uh, Tigray forces still have a presence in the neighboring regions, so Afar and Amhara. Some of the statements from the federal government um, is, with the truce announcement and since give the impression that perhaps they want the Tigray forces to withdraw completely from these border areas, um, perhaps you know before any aid goes in. And we're, we're really yet to see um, what the Tigray position is on that. Um, instead, it's more likely that they would want to see some aid delivery um, before sort of 
Um, what what a you know, senior Tigray official has described as a potential staggered withdrawal of, of troops can occur. So there's some tricky sequencing issues to overcome. So, Will, at this point, is there still continued fighting going on in, in Tigray or in the, in the sort of areas surrounding it? The main fighting sort of inside Tigray over the last few months since the Tigray forces withdrawn, withdrew has been various drone attacks by the federal army, presumably at, mostly at military targets, although they've hit civilian ones as well. Then there has been sort of quite a major incursion by the Tigray forces east from the capital, Mekele. Now, that's partly because 40 kilometers to the east of Mekele, you get to the regional border, Afar. So it's a potential sort of weak spot. Um, and the allegation from Mekele, from the Tigray leadership, was that Eritrean-backed forces, including Afar forces, were causing a lot of problems attacking Tigrayans in that area and, 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 and again, threatening Tigray security. So that was the Tigrayan justification for this incursion into Afar. They ended up sort of creating a bit of a uh, buffer sort of control by occupying a, a sort of up to five districts in that area. Um, massive displacement reported by Afar's government. Anyway, this Tigrayan incursion and activity in this area has then been used um, as one of the reasons for the failure to deliver aid along that corridor. Um, there's been some other skirmishes in, in the sort of uh, um, Tigray Amhara border areas and in the north between the Tigrayan and Eritrean forces, but nothing too large scale over the last few months. And well, as, as you say, the, the balance of forces swung back and forth. And you know, initially, Tigrayans seemed to be sort of, you know, down and out, ousted from Mikele. They then surged south. As we said, it looked as though they were almost going to march on Addis. They've now been pushed back mostly into uh, Tigray. I mean, what Tigrayan leaders, what do they say about the recent sort of federal offensive? How do they explain their their losses of, of territory? And has that sort of moderated what they're asking for now? Because, I mean, at some point it looked as though they were insistent on Abbey going. Has that now changed? Yeah, certainly that's been sort of deprioritized. De the Tigray leadership and, and the sort of activist outriders, they say that, um, you know, we were on the verge of, of taking over the federal government um, but we had no international support and and the US and others said, you know, you must retreat to Tigray and then we'll oversee a, you know, a peace process where all your demands are met. And that's a bit of a simplification. Um, and I think they, you know, they faced this aerial threat from the from the drones. They had these stretched supply lines from Tigray, also mass mobilization on the federal Amhara side. Yes, a lack of international support for forceful regime change. I think that was a factor. Also, the weakness of their domestic coalition in terms of their military alliance with the Oromo Liberation Army, an insurgent group in Oromia, the largest region, but also a weak domestic political co coalition to take over. Possibly also the threat of Eritrea from the north. I think these were the type of factors um, that led to the withdrawal. Now that they're back in Tigray, there's been these appeals to the international community from Mekele, um, you know, it, not just to ensure humanitarian access, to ensure that these Amhara and Eritrean forces withdraw from Western Tigray so that Tigray's pre-war borders are restored. Um, they've also uh, increasingly make reference to they, they want the space um, to hold a referendum on Tigray's independence as, as a nation state, something which under normal circumstances would be legal under Ethiopia's constitution. So they want space to hold that referendum. But most of all, 
They want to prevent um, a famine inside Tigray. You know, the US is talking about 700,000 people in famine-like conditions. In reality, no one has any real idea because there is no fuel for people to get around Tigray. There is no telecoms to really know what's happening in the remote areas. But we just know circumstantially that the region is in an absolutely catastrophic condition. And I think, you know, so they have these these various demands. Obviously, their leverage has reduced quite significantly since they were looking at making a kind of final attack on on, on addicts from 100 kilometers away. Um, and, I, you know, what, what they are also saying is that they have the military capacity to launch a new offensive um, should they not um, you know, begin to receive the necessary amount of aid and get reconnected services. And if they see no movement on those um, territorial demands. And we'll, we'll talk about the humanitarian situation in Tigray in a moment. But the idea that the Tigrayans didn't advance on Addis because they didn't have international support, I mean, that, that seems a bit misleading, right? I mean, Tigrayan leaders appear actually to have sort of overestimated how much support they'd enjoy further south, you know, as, as they advanced. They overestimated, you know, how much, how potent the, the Oromo Liberation Army, the OLA, would be uh, as an ally. And presumably, you know, if they could have toppled Abbey, you know, they would have done that irrespective of international support. And in the end, the opposite happened. Abbey mobilised a, uh, a lot of Ethiopians. He brought drones from Turkey, it seems, other military support from elsewhere and, and pushed back the Tigrayan advance. So the idea that Tigrayan forces would again march south toward Addis, I mean, I know the war has had its sort of twists and turns. It's been quite unpredictable, but that doesn't seem like a... A, a, a serious threat now, right? No, I think that's fair, fair comment. Um, I think you know, whichever way you look at it, they they, they they bit off more than they could chew. Um, and I think they're not talking, you know, about regime change. Not that they would use that language, but I do see pragmatism um, in terms of a willingness to work, try and work with the federal government, even though they believe the federal government has you know, been engaged in a genocidal war against them. But I do see a pragmatism to work with the federal government to try and give this you know, nascent process a chance. And I think that, you know, yes, there hasn't been much talk of, of marching southwards, um, and that doesn't seem like something which is likely to be imminent. But we do see references to um, we, 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 you know, we, we withdrew in an orderly fashion. We didn't lose too much of our men or our hardware. We do have the capabilities to launch a new offensive should we be forced into doing so. There's been reports that the Tigrayans have also got some fresh weapons in, right? Um, Addis has, the federal government has access to the international arms market, right? Um, and the Tigrayans are still you're very much constrained. But there have been reports of about uh, 10, 10 flights, Antonov's, it was said to me going in at night delivering some sort of cargo to two airports in in Tigray. So we obviously, we, as you can imagine, we can't be sure about what was in those planes, let alone where they came from. But there was pretty solid evidence uh, we received that, that 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 had occurred. I mean, people were talking about the they would obviously love some sort of drone jamming technology, um, but it's pretty much guesswork at the moment about what they acquired. Well, can you help us to better understand how the humanitarian situation became so dire and particularly um, some of the observations um, on the ground that the government has effectively held humanitarian aid hostage or strategically prevented humanitarian aid from reaching to gray in order to change the dynamic of the negotiations? What is the situation in terms of, of access? 
So access at the moment is restricted to some, um, you know, humanitarian flights from Addis Ababa to, to Mekele, the regional capital, and that's you know, primarily medical equipment, which is one of the many essential items, which is in incredibly short supply. Um, the other main access point is, is from the Afar regional capital, Samara, uh, well, you know, Addis to Samara and then Samara and then west to Mekele. Um, that's the only land corridor that's open. And because of various issues, you know, that, that insecurity, um, then that has been a massive problem. Sometimes the convoys just simply don't get permission from the regional authorities. Sometimes the convoys leave and then they're attacked by communities in Afar and the convoys looted. Sorry, well, and just to clarify, these are aid convoys that are humanitarian organizations? World Food Programme are the ones that I'm primarily referring to, and they're, they're delivering, supposed to be delivering the bulk of the food. And then other com components of what is called a de facto blockade by, you know, humanitarian actors are that, you know, they federally provided services um, since the outset of the war, other than the period when the federal government was in power in Mekele, so the first half of last year, the federally provided services, so telecoms, banking, um, ele electricity, they have not been provided. So that's obviously a massive hindrance to any humanitarian operation and just a normal functioning of an economy. Also, there is nothing like normal trade flows into Tigray. So again, huge blow to the economy. The economy is very agricultural. Um, that's been a problem because of you know a raging war. There was also sort of what looked like systemic destruction of agricultural equipment and stores of crops as well. Um, Eritrean troops received the sort of brunt of the allegations in, in that regard. Um, so there's a, a number of factors that are playing into this humanitarian crisis. And this has a sort of knock-on effect, like I was saying, you know, not, not just in terms of medical supplies, but in terms of medical facilities. Some of them have been damaged and looted, as they have been um, during the, the Tigrayan um, incursion south, reportedly, as well. Um, but all these um, factors are just compounding this, this crisis. And there was some relief because... You know, when the Tigray, um, the TPLF, Tigray's leaders were able to kind of resume regional control in July, um, there was something of a harvest um, that came in towards the end of last year to provide some relief in, in rural areas. But because this has been going on so long now, this cumulative compounding effect is, is really creating pretty dire situation. We're already seeing, you know, as, as much as people can work out what the situation is, very high mal malnutrition rates. There's estimates that half a million people have, have died already as a result of the blockade. Um, there are reports of, um, you know, high mortality rates and this type of thing. So it's very hard for people to be authoritative, let alone precise. But there's all sorts of worrying indicators around. Sorry, I just wanted to emphasize a point you just made, which is that it, it's it's easy from the humanitarian side to talk about the number of convoys that get in or the goods that are being allowed in. But as you point out, if the underlying infrastructure has been destroyed, that has a very close connection to the capacity of humanitarian aid to save lives at this point. Yeah, exactly. And, and also things like, you know, if, if some food gets in, but no fuel gets in, how are people going to be able to deliver it around Tigray, and then it's no good just a few trucks going in. I mean, you know, for a while, people have been saying they need 100 trucks a day to meet the humanitarian needs inside Tigray. So that's a massive scaling up of this um, trickle of aid that we've seen over the last few months and before that. And the value of the truce then will sort of really depend on whether that starts, basically. Ab ab absolutely, Richard, yeah. 
And so, Will, that's the sort of Tigray side. Let's let's talk a bit about then the forces sort of opposing the uh, Tigrayans. So starting obviously with Prime Minister Abiy himself. I mean, if the Tigrayans sort of, uh, you know, overestimated what they were going to be able to do as they marched south, Abiy initially clearly uh, miscalculated in his assessment of Tigrayan resistance and how quickly he'd be able to sort of deal a, deal a blow to Tigrayan leaders when he first sent in federal forces. And this time in his latest offensive, I mean, tell me if this is wrong, but he seems to have exercised some restraint in that federal forces haven't gone back into Tigray to try and take on the Tigrayans in their home region again. Is that fair? Do you see his calculations changing? Um, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's probably reasonable. Um, you know, there's still questions about his you know, ultimate intentions here, but it, but it, you know, if if there is an effort to you know, completely see the back of the TPLF, then probably it's part of this very attritional strategy where you just essentially make life so miser- miserable inside Tigray that eventually the people turn against their their leadership. That could still be in play, but yes, I think that there has been a realization that um, to defeat you know this Tigray. Um, army essentially, which has been built up over the course of the last year. You know, th- these guys talk about having several hundred thousand fighters under under arms now. There does seem to be a realization from some federal actors um, that the initial goals of the of the war uh, are not achievable. Um, but I think that does leave um, a bunch of questions about you know, what the federal strategy actually is now. And what do you think explains uh, the government's announcement of the truce right now? You were highlighting this Tigrayan withdrawal, which essentially came from a position of, of weakness. They couldn't do what they achieved. And you know, that was a success on military terms for the federal government, obviously. Much better to have uh, the Tigray leadership and forces, again, sort of boxed in back in Tigray, rather than to have them sort of marauding around southern Amhara, threatening Addis Ababa. So you know, we must remember that Abiy got himself into a relatively strong position um, because of, of that um, those, those events, and then subsequently to that, you know, he's he's played his hand quite well. Um, he's managed his own ruling party business at the centre. Um, generally, Abiy is in a more you know, secure position than, than than he was. I think you know one of the big factors that's leading to these signs of you know a more accommodating position uh, towards the the, the the TPLF is perhaps the economic factor. Um, Ethiopia is in a generally in a very difficult economic situation. It's got debt problems, um, massively reduced growth, inflation sort of already running at about 40% annually, um, and a big drop in borrowing, uh, direct investment, and now a big drop in development assistance as well because of the consequences of the war and the human rights abuses and the failures to get any sort of peace process and ceasefire going as well as the blocks on humanitarian assistance. So it looks like, you know, given Ethiopia's overall economic situation, the government's sort of difficult fiscal position that the prime minister has an eye on improving his relations with the international community here, trying to get some of the bilateral and big multilateral programs, World Bank, IMF, restarted to try and alleviate some of the economic pressure. So I think it's the sort of twin realization that there is no real military solution here. Um, and that Ethiopia and his government is in a very tight spot economically that's primarily led to this pivot. Well, if Abiy is looking to improve some of his foreign relations with donors especially, Western powers especially, by seeking some sort of accommodation with Tigray, um, that may come at a cost 
in his ties to others nearer home, right? I mean, so particularly Amhara elites who've been part of the coalition that make up his ruling prosperity party and with Eritrean president Isaias Afwerki. So I referenced the, um, the the party business. So the party, the ruling party, prosperity party held a congress and they elected you know, central and executive committees. So the, the general consensus was that the more hardline Amhara characters had been sidelined as part of that process. So that seemed to be a precursor uh, to some of these accommodating steps that Abiy's taken you know, towards the Tigray situation. And whenever he does that, um, that also means that he's not doing stuff which is exactly what President Isaias Afwerki in, in Eritrea would like to see. The Eritrean government has a fantastically hardline, ruthless, uncompromising stance towards the TPLF. They believe they're a regional troublemaker and they want to see the back of them. So you're absolutely, Abby has, um, you know, the, the, the prime minister has, has made these moves. Um, and that means that there has, it has caused a certain amount of discontent in Amhara, as well as in Asmara, Eritrea's capital. Um, so far, you know, he seems to still be in control of things. But I think the question becomes, you know, how far can the prime minister go without really upsetting his erstwhile Amhara and Eritrean allies. And I think at this point, we have to focus on the issue of Western Tigray, um, which is the potential Tigrayan access to the Sudanese border to resupply. Um, and it's also, you know, this area that's been taken over and claimed as their historic territory by Amhara region since the first few weeks of the war. And that is a position which has been backed up um, for a number of months now by a considerable contingent of, of Eritrea's military. Now, so Abby is, is you know, walking a, a fine line here. Um, how, can he, how can he move enough on Western Tigray um, to satisfy Tigray's leaders and bring them along in a peace process, thereby improving his relations internationally with donors, but do so in a manner which doesn't cause a huge amount of unrest um, in, amongst the Amhara and, and with Eritrea. And then there was also just Abiy's strategic consideration. He's looking to you know, rehabilitate the, the TPLF to the extent where he no longer sees a threat from the Tigray forces um, accessing that international border and the ability to resupply. Does he no longer see this Tigrayan army, which was about to march on Addis three months ago or four, four months ago, as a threat? That, that doesn't necessarily seem credible. So I think this issue of Western Tigray and just how far Abiy can go with this peace process um, is you know one of the sort of major obstacles that everyone's going to have to try and overcome here. Though it's quite an obstacle, right? Well, I mean, it's hard to see how that aspect of the dispute is resolved without more violence. I mean, these are areas that the Amhara have claimed the Tigrayans took from them in the late 80s, early 90s, when the TPLF was sort of surging to power originally. And then when Abiy launched his first offensive in Tigray, Amhara forces seized them back displace millions of Tigrayans. And it's hard now to see Tigrayan leaders accepting the permanent loss of that territory, but equally hard to see the Amhara giving it back. I mean, there has been this idea that maybe there could be some sort of federal administration, you know, people appointed directly by Addis, that the Amhara would hand over to that. But again, it's hard to see that happening. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult for the reasons that you sketch out. And I think... Um, what, 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 what I'm hearing from the sort of, you know, more kind of neutral mediator point of view is that the, the idea is that you know, this is a very kind of sequential incremental 
process, right? So you get the aid moving into Tigray. You get the cessation of hostilities, period. Um, you agree with the Tigrayans maybe to withdraw from some areas. You reconnect Tigray in various ways with those services. So you build up trust and you build up a peace process and you essentially park these most thorny elements for later. But as you recognize that the difficulty is um, getting the Tigrayan acceptance of that. You know, how are you going to buy them into something where you promise in a convincing fashion um, that, that ultimately, you know, this territorial issue will be resolved in a manner where their sort of essentially non-negotiable demand for a return to Tigray's you know, pre-war administrative borders. So the exit of Amhara and Eritrean forces and from that region, that district, um, that they're, they're assured of that. Um, you know, that is the really tricky piece here. And I think that's the, the first hurdle. Um, in terms of eventual solutions, it's also quite difficult. Um, often, you know, in the Ethiopian system, you know, this would be a sort of matter of, of self-determination. You would try and hold a referendum in the area. But because of the amount of population displacement, um, at times, essentially ethnic cleansing in this area over decades, it's going to be very hard to get any agreement on, on who would vote in such a referendum. So what one theoretical solution would be that this area becomes an autonomous administration, neither Amhara nor Tigray. The idea of federal administration is probably something that makes sense in Addis Ababa. But I don't think federal administration of the area is something that would make sense in Bahidar, the Amhara capital, and neither would it make sense in Mekele, the Tigray capital, um, for, for, slightly, for slightly different reasons. But the problem is getting past the zero-sum positions that are held by the two regional states and their ruling parties and their constituencies, etc. And, and, and really, you know, we can, we can all imagine sort of theoretical um, sort of administrative, political, legal solutions for these types of problems. But it's much more immediate than that. You know, if we're going to have a real peace process and, and, and it's about who's in control on the ground at the beginning of that peace process. Um, so it really is a very thorny issue. And at, the, and at the moment, the thinking has only really got so far as we'll deal with it later. Um, when we've already made some some progress and we've got a sort of better political environment to try and tackle these incredibly difficult issues. Well, can I push a little bit on Eritrea? I mean, sure, ISIS could be upset with Abiy for any sort of accommodation towards the, uh, the TPLF, the Tigrayan leadership. But at the end of the day, if Abiy and the Tigrayans can work out their differences what is Isaias going to do? I mean, his strength in Ethiopia came from the fact that he was allied to Abiy and that Abiy was opposed to the Tigrayans. Were that dispute resolved, what influence does Isaias have, except, as you say, potentially making the Western Tigray situation more complicated by backing the Amhara? Yeah, I mean, that, that would obviously be a you know very disadvantageous situation for Isaias in terms of c- continuing or extending his influence in in Ethiopia. And I think that uh, you know, it, I think it, it, in many ways, I think it would be a lot worse in that scenario. I mean, I think he would see um, a, a Tigrayan force, which has essentially made peace with Ethiopia's federal military. Um, he would be very, very worried about Eritrea's security in that circumstance. Um, so absolutely something that he wants to avoid. I, I do think, you know, that type of um, reconciliation between you know, the federal and regional authorities in Tigray is still a pretty long way off. Um, and one of the things that, um, one of the things that we know, and it's not always to know what's going on in Asmara and Eritrea, one of the things we know is that they have been building their alliances with the Amhara, including training Amhara, um, security forces and, and militia, I believe, 
in in Western Tigray. So this is seen to be you know, partly a product of the of the tensions between um, Abi and and desires. But ultimately, you know, the scenario that you sketch out would be a, a hugely problematic one for Isaias. Um, and although, you know, I think a bunch of, you know, Eritrea's kind of war objectives have been served here, I think they already are um, facing, you know, quite a serious problem um, because, you know, even though there's been all this destruction and weakening of Tigray, as a response, you know, Tigray has built up this large, um, this large army, essentially. Um, and there's all sorts of uh, momentum uh, towards a full secession movement in, in Tigray. Now, if that did come to pass, and if we're actually seeing, you know, really we're seeing this kind of sparring, the opening shots of a Tigray war of independence here, well, it's very hard to imagine that occurring without that Tigrayan force and independence movement coming to blows with um, an Isaias-run Eritrea. So, Will, in, in trying to understand sort of these other challenges that are facing the country and facing Abi's leadership, can you tell us about... Uh, the situation in, in Oromia, where Abi is from, uh, there was another insurgency, the OLA, that initially attempted to link up with the Tigrayans. Can you tell us where things stand uh, in that situation? Yeah, sure. No, this is a really important part of the picture. This massive falling out um, between Abi at the center, who is from Oromia, um, and, and this sort of Oromo nationalist political camp. Um, there were some very momentous, you know, events in 2020 and assassination. Um, and there was, you know, the arrest of mainstream Oromo opposition leaders. But even prior to that, um, there was a sort of armed, um, there was an armed faction of the Oromo nationalist opposition. And they started, you know, started a new insurgency, essentially, in, in Oromia, um, right from back in 2018. As the mainstream Oromo opposition found itself shut out from the democratic process, that fueled this more hardline armed faction in Oromia, you know, of the Oromo nationalist camp, swelled the ranks of their rebellion. Um, and so they started moving from the sort of far western strongholds in Oromia um, and also from a southern stronghold, taking control of other you know, rural areas um, launching attacks on you know, government convoys and and installations, creating a, a, a massive security challenge um, across you know, quite a considerable swathe of, of Oromia. That's been met with um, an increasingly violent counterinsurgency operation by Oromia regional security forces and the federal military. But at the moment, we seem to have one of those overarching deadlock type situations. I'm not saying it's static, but it doesn't look like anytime soon this Oromo Liberation Army, which has quite a lot of popular support, it seems, is going to be um, eliminated. Um, but it also doesn't seem that that Oromo Liberation Army, despite its gains, um, is going to be able to sort of seize major cities, um, generally present a threat to regional or federal authority. And in fact, you know, speaking to the, the leadership of the OLA recently, they basically admitted that they have no interest in, in, in negotiating with Abiy and his government, but they see no real prospect of a military win for their insurgency. So it does look like another sort of very serious entrenched conflict. You can imagine it's making life absolutely miserable for the civilians trapped. Oromia surrounds Addis Ababa, the capital, occupies a huge bulk of mostly quite fertile areas of Ethiopia. So it's a massive blow to the economy. 
you know, a very, very serious problem. It's the sort of thing that we would hope would get addressed by the national dialogue. But that also looks to be a process where you know, significant chunks of the opposition consider themselves excluded from it um, and therefore not participating in the national dialogue. And well, so could we kind of move on to the international politics of uh, of the war and sort of Abbey's relations with outside powers? I mean, let, let's start then with the, if we can start with the countries that seem to have sold weapons recently, drones in particular, to Abbey, which helped his sort of offensive that pushed the Tigrayans back. So uh, Turkey, the, the Emirates as well, who Abbey has particularly good relations with. I mean, do you want to say something about sort of how how his relations with some of those non-Western powers have evolved? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that um, those who backed Abiy's uh, government militarily at the end of last year pretty much decided they you know, backed the, back the right horse there. You know, I was recently speaking to diplomats in, in New York from various missions, including the Emiratis and, and Russians, and you could see that they were pretty consistent and confident in their support of Abiy's government. So the extent you know, to which they were considered to supply drones at concessionary rates or or, or, or or other economic assistance from these various parties is is far from clear. But in terms of the sort of basic bilateral relationships, I think they're quite solid. Maybe the interesting one is the Emiratis, which has shown interest in, in getting involved in mediating processes, whether it's over the Renaissance Dam, you know, Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt, the Ethiopia, Sudan territorial dispute, Al-Fashiga. And then recently, there's some suggestion that they're um, you're looking to maybe try and host some talks for the Ethiopian parties. They're also delivering a bit of humanitarian assistance to the Tigrayans to try and build some bridges there. Um, not surprisingly, the Tigrayans don't seem too enthusiastic, but I think it is the Emiratis who are looking at getting kind of involved in, in some of the regional and international diplomacy around you know, Ethiopia's civil war. And we'll, we'll come to the, the US uh, in a moment. But I mean, we, you talked about the Renaissance Dam, this big uh, Ethiopian dam on the, on the Nile and the dispute over the Nile waters, in essence, pitting uh, Ethiopia against Sudan and Egypt, which are both worried about how the dam is going to affect their, their access to water on the Nile. Sudan also has this, this dispute with Egypt over the disputed areas that you mentioned, the Al-Fashaga areas. How have Egypt and Sudan positioned themselves uh, in light of the the sort of the the, the latest federal offensive uh, and the Tigrayans' retreat, no, no, no massive change. I think they've been you know, certainly formally sitting on on the sidelines. Something Egyptian diplomat was was quite keen to to stress to me recently. Um, I think there has been um, you know, obviously. I think that it's it's Sudan which is closer to the action here. There are sixty thousand Tigrayan refugees from Western Tigray just across the border in Sudan. Some of them have been trained up to fight. Um, and that's, you know, a card that, that Sudan is holding. Well, just a follow-up question. When you say trained up to fight, do you mean by the Sudanese? Um, no, no, um, but, but with you know, tacit um, Sudanese permission for, for Tigrayan um, senior military figures to train up fighters across the border. So I think that the issue here is that, you know, should um, this peace process, this sort of nascent peace process, not really lead anywhere. And the Tigrayans decide to sort of go for broke and, and charge west to try and reclaim that territory and, and access the Sudanese border. As, it, as has been the case for many, many months, there is a serious risk that, that Sudan um, gets, gets brought into the conflict. Um, Addis Khartoum relations are pretty bad. Um, so I think that could be a, 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 you know, a really 
worrying development for regional security. Otherwise, um, I think you know, everyone is dealing with their own sort of internal transitional business, particularly in you know, Khartoum, obviously. Unfortunately, because of these political circumstances, regionally, in, in domestically in the various places, I see very little prospect of constructive uh, negotiation activity over the Renaissance Dam. Um, so instead, I think we just have to see you know how 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 things how things develop but i think for, for now it'll just be a maintenance of the a maintaining of 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 the status quo in terms of the positioning um of of egypt and sudan certainly at least publicly there might be all sorts of things going on covertly well could i just quickly come back to this uh the, the to the danger that the tigrayans move into western tigray to kind of re- try to recapture those areas um which you know as as you said wouldn't just lead to fighting there, but could also potentially draw in the Sudanese. I mean, I understand that it would actually be quite difficult for the Tigrayans to move into those areas there, the sort of flatlands. Uh, so Tigrayan forces could easily get hit by airstrikes. They'd be very exposed unless the federal government would kind of turn a blind eye to that operation, which for now appears unlikely. I think broadly that's that's right, Richard. Yeah, I think the probably the Tigrayan forces are quite still quite an infantry-heavy force. I don't think this territory in Western Tigray, which is relatively low-lying and exposed, is is anything like ideal for them. Um, it, it does seem like it would leave them exposed to, to aerial attack, um, presumably also more suitable for mechanised units. Um, well, they have captured plenty of those. You know, we, we might think that the Eritreans and Ethiopian federal military still has an advantage in in that regard. Um, so no, no doubt it's a tough military proposition. And I think that is shown just by the fact that they didn't go for it in July. As you know, it's been really hard to tell what the balance of forces is in this war and what's going to happen next. Um, but I think there is plenty of reason to say that it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a major challenge. Well, let's uh, shift the perspective a bit to Washington. Uh, what's the U.S. view of, of both Abi and of the evolving uh, situation in, in Tigray? Well, it depends which part of the U.S. government you're talking about, I guess. Um, but I think um, I think generally that um, again, sort of pragmatism, I would say, uh, from the executive, um, also from the you know from the from the State Department. I think um, obviously they're pushing very hard, um, including you know, working with the African Union envoy, European Union, um, Kenya's government to some extent, pushing hard on the humanitarian access, cessation of hostilities, ceasefire broader political process. But, you know, go, going back, you know, around a, a year or nine months, there's a lot of momentum building up in the US for sort of punitive measures um, against the various actors here. Um, that hasn't really come to pass. You know, there have been major cuts to, to development assistance to, to Ethiopia, um, but they haven't come out swinging that hard in, in terms of punitive measures. And I think, you know, since the federal government had this military successes late last year, and generally Abiy is looking quite secure, then there's this sort of pragmatic approach, um, realizing, very much realizing that, that you know, Abiy doesn't look like he's going anywhere. Ethiopia is an important regional ally. He's a powerful leader, and he's the person that we have to do business with. Um, so I think that is the, the overall sort of shift and, and latest positioning of, of the US. But we should also remember that throughout their policy has remained pretty consistent with their traditional allies, which again is, you know, humanitarian access, cessation of hostilities and ceasefire and the opening of political negotiations. And that hasn't changed. And there's also uh, the African Union envoy, uh, former 
Nigerian president uh, Olusegun Obasanjo. Has he been involved at all in this truce? Yeah, I think so. I think the Americans and their envoy David Satterfield has been quite active, but I, I think President Obasanjo also. I mean, everyone's basically been engaged in shuttle diplomacy. You know, they, they have been able to travel up to Mekele as well as obviously to Addis. They've also started visiting regional capitals such as. Amhara and then increasingly Afar because of its centrality to the humanitarian access issue. Um, but yeah, Obasanjo has been doing his shuttle diplomacy. I don't think one actor has been really decisive here. And ultimately, you know, I think the progress we're probably seeing is more because of these calculations by Abiy, you know, the economic pressures he's facing, maybe the realization there's no military solution. So, well, I, I wanted to ask, there's, there's a lot of debate around remote warfare and technology saying that drones are, are they're merely a platform, right? That they don't change the dynamics of conflict or just simply a type of weapon. I'd really love to hear what is your sense of the, the significance of drones in this conflict? I think in this context, they do seem to have been quite um, a major factor um, on on their own. And I think if we go back to the beginning of the war, the the Tigray leadership was essentially blindsided by the fact that that Abiy and some of his military commanders had developed a drone capacity in the federal military, which they simply weren't aware of. So they they kind of essentially with some sort of conspiring Tigrayan officers took over and neutralized a large section of the federal military based in Tigray, captured a bunch of hardware, and then they found a lot of it taken taken out by these um, drone attacks. So I think the combination of the you know, the technology and and then, and then the sort of the surprise element of that military activity was was quite devastating. And then I suppose similarly, um, because um, the federal government seemed to be able to refresh its drone capacity at, at, at a crucial time, um, you know, July, August, September, when the Tigrayan forces were advancing south. There was this sort of race almost for the Tigrayan forces to get to Addis before the drones could arrive and be assembled and be put to use. But as it transpired, um, in the areas where the Tigrayan forces were quite vulnerable, so when they pushed east into the Afar lowlands to try and sort of capture the Djibouti road, that seemed to be a difficult proposition, partly because of the aerial threat. And then also because they were pouring down out of Tigray, they sort of created this um, you know, supply line of several hundred kilometers. Um, and they ended up being, again, very vulnerable. And I think, I guess, one of the obvious points to make here is that you know, Tigray's regional government was clearly like quite capable um, and, and you know, had some security capacity and then built it up very quickly. They don't have an air force. So it's complete dominance um, for, for the federal military in the air, other than the you know, threat from you know, surface-to-air missiles and stuff, which has happened. Um, but I think you know, because of that imbalance, it also makes maybe drones um, particularly um, important in this context. So, well, could you tell us the implications of the conflict in Ukraine for Ethiopia, both in terms of Ethiopia's positioning on the invasion, uh, but also more broadly, you mentioned earlier that there could be implications for um, food, access to food and other um, goods in Ethiopia as a result of the war in Ukraine. Maybe diplomatically, I don't see it as too <clears throat> consequential, um, no sort of game changer. Yeah, Ethiopia abstained in the General Assembly vote. Ethiopia is very pragmatic in terms of its foreign alliances. Um, we we'll try and do a certain amount of, of, of fence sitting. You know, it really, um, a huge propaganda campaign against the US for alleged meddling and, and supporting rebels in Ethiopia recently. So no surprise to find that, um, and you know, strong support from China and Russia at the Security Council for Abiy's government. No, no real surprise that it took that 
stance. What seems potentially much more consequential is the increased food prices for a country which does obviously rely on um, you know, a, d- a decent amount of imported food and food aid. Also, just generally the, the increasing fuel prices and then the fertilizer issue as well. Now, you know, Ethiopia is already in a very difficult situation. Um, over 20 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. Annual inflation already running at 40%. So I think it's the impact um, of these you know, commodity price shocks and, 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 it, and its impact on already sort of sky high inflation in Ethiopia, um, which we need to, to watch out for. As discussed, that already seems to be you know, one of the pressure points that, that Abiy's government is, is responding to. But of course, the really worrying factor is you know, to what extent um, is this sort of rampant inflation and, and, and the cost of living just getting harder and harder for people already in desperate situations? How is that going to impact conflicts in Ethiopia? Is it going to exacerbate, ex- exacerbate them? Is it going to create new conflicts? Um, is it going to further reduce the government's ability to control those conflicts and maintain law and order. Or potentially will lead to protests and unrest, which is a, you know, a typical avenue when living conditions decline, right? Yes, of course. And I think there's all, there's all sorts of potential for that. Um, you know, I've, I've had like senior, you know, well-informed you know, political operators say they believe that actually the effect in Ethiopia will not be sort of bread and fuel protests, but as life gets harder, it will sort of exacerbate the intercommunal conflicts that we've seen already, which would be very worrying. Well, maybe if we can just sort of end on on Tigray and the and, and the truce, as you said, it's a reason for cautious optimism. But if you were to kind of think of a of a good scenario from here, what would you be pushing the government Tigrayan leaders to do? Well, there's only one way forward, I think, Richard, which is that um, you know, there needs to be a sort of leap of, of faith shown by all parties here that has to start with delivery, consistent, scaled up delivery of, of aid, everything that's needed for the humanitarian operation, including the restoration of services to Tigray. I, I think, you know, as an initial quid pro quo, the Tigrayan forces would have to you know, withdraw um, from the, these pockets of Amhara um, and, and Afar that they still occupy. Then we're into the more political process. You know, will the Tigray leadership recognize Abiy's government finally as a legitimate one and vice versa, potentially the delisting of TPLF as a terrorist organization. Yeah, that's a classification of the federal parliament. These are the steps that the parties have to take if we're going to get on a sustainable path to peace here. Um, the, the, the trouble is, as we discussed, that, you know, there's certainly for the, for the, for the prime minister, it's, it's hard to take these steps without creating new enemies elsewhere. And then as discussed, we've got this very kind of thorny, tough, essentially zero sum territorial dispute in, in, in Western Tigray. Um, and realistically, it does seem like we have to try and make progress in all these other areas, including, most importantly, just averting um, the worst humanitarian outcomes in, in Tigray and, 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 and other areas that are, that are suffering. Um, and then moving through the peace process and eventually um, you know, forming a political process to try and tackle that, that dispute and others, including the future of Tigray within or, or outside the Federation, of course. Will, thanks so much for coming on. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. So, Richard, uh, once again, a, a fascinating conversation with Will. What were your main reflections on our discussion? Yeah, Naz, you know, we've been focused a lot, obviously, on Ukraine over recent weeks. But coming back to the war in Ethiopia, which, you know, and again, it, it's it's the 
it's very difficult to to know because the statistics are not very good. But it's likely that the Ethiopia war was the was the deadliest uh, in terms of numbers of people killed uh, in 2021. Tens of thousands of people certainly have died in the fighting. Um, you know, and that's only a part of the, the 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 human cost of it. But coming back to the war, kind of reminds me of a discussion we had, I think, in its early stages, just when Prime Minister Abiy sent in uh, federal forces into Tigray, uh, this discussion about what he could reasonably expect to achieve with military force. And there was this sort of idea, you know, really because of the credibility that, that the Prime Minister enjoyed at the time of kind of give war a chance, give him a chance. You know, these are people that have been obstructing his transition, the Tigrayan leadership. And there was this sort of question of what a leader can reasonably hope to achieve through violence. And, you know, this comes at a time when, I think many leaders around the world are pursuing goals through through military force, through violence, as much as they are through diplomacy, or often some sort of some combination. So it sort of resonates well beyond Ethiopia. And this sort of question about what military force can achieve, um, you know, especially over the last couple of years that have seen, you know, a lot of wars, including some new wars or wars that have new dynamics. You know, the, the, the picture, I think, is really is kind of very mixed. Um, it seems that sort of one war upends the conclusions from from the last, and um, you know, belligerents' ability to achieve their goals on the battlefield has has really varied. So, I mean, if you start with Ethiopia, you know, Abiy obviously hoped to defeat the Tigrayan leadership quickly, and initially looked like he might do that. But then, I, mean, I remember having conversations with Will at the time. You know, he said it would happen, and sure enough, the Tigrayans bounced back. And now federal forces have pushed the Tigrayans back again, as we talked about. But, the, you know, the war's been a disaster for Ethiopia uh, and it's been pretty bad for Abiy himself. I mean, it looks like he'll survive now that federal forces have pushed the Tigrayans back. But for a while, he really seemed threatened. And, you know, even now he's sort of back where he started, uh, except with this secession question looming for Tigray, the very thorny Western Tigray issue that we talked about. Eritrea relations much more complicated, but he's definitely not in a better position than he was 18 months ago. And his his international reputation, although it's sort of been resuscitated to some degree, you know, as the reality that he's going to stay in power has become clearer. But you know, his international reputation has definitely taken a, a hit, and he certainly hasn't achieved his goals. So that's Ethiopia. But then you look at some of the other wars over the last couple of years. What I mean, the uh, Turkey's intervention in Libya, for example. So I think there, you know, a lot of people, you know, crisis group included, sort of felt that Turkey getting more involved would make that conflict much worse. It would internationalise it further, kind of raise the stakes with Turkey's regional rivals, especially Egypt and the, and the Emiratis. But in fact, the intervention sort of turned the course of the war, you know, maybe even in a positive way. It saved Tripoli from being captured saved the internationally recognised government from being ousted by Khalifa Haftar's forces, pushed them back. But then, sensibly, that kind of offensive didn't push too far east, which could have drawn in Egypt, and instead created this stalemate, created space for political talks, and the peace process now is under strain. But Turkey achieved its objectives, you know, at least in the short term, in that it got a friendlier Libyan government. And, and then, sort of later that year, you had in the latest Nagorno-Karabakh war, when Azerbaijan... Now, again, with Turkish support, you know, including the Barakhtar drones that we talked about, you know, made quite short work of Armenian forces in these areas adjacent to Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, again, Azerbaijan basically got what it wanted in a fairly short war. I mean, Russia came out of it well. 
got its military presence in in the Caucasus, South Caucasus, which you know, Azerbaijan is definitely apprehensive about. But clearly, from the perspective of Baku, I mean, not in terms of it being a good thing in terms of international peace and security, but from the perspective of Baku, that you know it achieved its objectives militarily. Then what? I mean, you have the Taliban in Afghanistan. And again, Taliban went all in for a military victory, swept across the country into Kabul, largely unopposed. President uh, Ashraf Ghani abandoned the country. The Afghan army, on which the West had invested billions, collapsed. So the Taliban, again, sort of largely calculated correctly and got what they wanted militarily. I mean, there was definitely a diplomatic aspect to their military offensive. There was a lot of winning over you know, local leaders, uh, you know, so there was there was a lot of politics to it as well, but they achieved a full military victory. And then, you know, now, perhaps in, in the starkest imaginable contrast to that, in terms of getting what you want through force, you have Ukraine, where, where the Russians, the Kremlin, appears to have completely miscalculated. You know, if Ashraf Ghani fled, President uh, Vladimir Zelensky is a war hero. You know, if Western intelligence, I mean, this is debatable, but if Western intelligence appeared to sort of misread Afghanistan, then they got everything right about Ukraine, Western arms supplies, both since the war started and um, the training that the West has provided since 2014 to Ukraine has sort of helped the Ukrainians resist. And Moscow, which has, you know, sort of been hailed recently for its military savvy in Syria, keeping its goals realistic, you know, not miscalculating, you know, in fact, in Ukraine have come sort of completely unstuck and got very bogged down. And obviously, there's a potentially a long way to go in the war. It could play out in different ways. But the early stages of it have been a, 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 a disaster for, for, for Russia. So it sort of seems that that every war debunks the last one. And of course, you can explain every one of them individually. You know, I mean, it's quite easy to explain why the Afghan army was routed in hindsight. It's quite easy to explain the Taliban's success. You know, it's, we know the reasons why Azerbaijan in the disputed areas, why Turkey and Libya prevailed and why Abiy got bogged down in Tigray and the Russians are bogged down in Ukraine. Looking at them individually, you know, you can explain them all. But when you put it all together, you know, it does sort of defy an easy conclusion, sort of glib one-liners about what military force can and can't achieve. You know, perhaps actually now, now is the only narrative thread across those is something that you know uh, much more about, which is that really without exception, the human toll and the disregard for human life has been pretty much monstrous throughout, right? So Richard, my sense is that one useful conclusion from your from your reflection is that you can't summarize the potential for military violence to uh, to accomplish political objectives um, easily, uh, and that it's exactly the kind of much more complex analysis that that colleagues like Will are doing that that is useful for any kind of uh, broader reflection we can make on conflict. Uh, but it also does strike me that both Ethiopia and Ukraine remind us that tactics in conflict that we may have thought of as being no longer acceptable, whether a formal siege or or a de facto blockade uh, in in Ethiopia, can be brutally effective in terms of changing the dynamics of a conflict. That that the the effort to bring people to their knees, the effort to um, 
to starve people. And in a sense, extending and prolonging these kinds, the, these kinds of brutal actions over time may help to lessen the sense of international outrage. Right, right now, Mariupol is, is a city that many in the world are aware of and, and their eyes are on the devastation being caused for civilians. But there are cities in Syria, in Yemen today, um, that are not. And one wonders if, if part of the, the strategy of being willing to to devastate and immiserate people over a long period of time is is an effective way of ensuring that much of the world forgets about what is happening in a particular place. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of, of Syria, actually, where, you know, over the past couple of years, you've had this sort of uneasy ceasefire that has kept violence at bay. But before that, there was this sense that the, the sort of stamina of the, of, of the Syrian regime, of Russia, to perpetrate these horrific tactics sort of wore down over years the sense of outrage that those tactics had, had initially inspired. I mean, I, I think the other thing that's, that's sort of striking is that, of course, there's a lot of thought going in, uh, in at the moment to the, to the future of warfare. You know, drones, of course, that we talked about, you asked Will about other forms of artificial intelligence, cyber attacks, for example. But in some ways, you know, the Ethiopian and Ukraine wars have been very conventional. I mean, Ethiopia... Obviously, the government has the air advantage that Will talked about, but a lot of it, a lot of the fighting has been ground troops. And you've had these human waves of, of forces uh, attacking each other. And in Ukraine, again, sort of conventional armies facing off against each other. And of course, you have the new aspects like the, 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 the drones and obviously the equipment in Ukraine in particular is, is very different to the equipment. Of, of some decades ago, but it's also striking how familiar and, and, and 20th century uh, some of the violence is. And I think also a reminder that the rules are not going to save us, right? That, that of course it matters that we talk about the applicability of humanitarian law in these conflicts. Of course, it, it's been, I think, um, affirming for some to hear major powers, including the U.S., surprisingly talking about potential criminal accountability for war crimes in, in Ukraine. But when I hear Will discussing the destruction of the underlying infrastructure in, in Mekele and in Tigray, uh, creating a situation in which, as you said, it doesn't matter if five trucks get in, right? It's where you have to suddenly scale up to rebuild the capacity of an entire area to to be able to provide medical care, to be able to store food properly. It reminds me that international humanitarian law is not the answer to what we are worried about. It really is addressing um, the use of force itself. Nas, can I push you a little bit on the US sort of calling for criminal accountability for the war crimes in, in Ukraine? I mean, first, maybe just to say that, of course, the imperative to sort of raise the issue of war crimes is completely understandable in Ukraine. But in the end, there is probably going to have to be some sort of compromise with, with Putin. So sort of implying that he's going to end up in The Hague, which, you know, frankly, seems very unlikely to happen. I mean, you can overstate how damaging it is, but it's also not really clear how it contributes to the, you know, the negotiated end to the war, which for now, you know, appears some way off. The talks 
don't seem to be going anywhere at the moment, but you know, that will be the quickest way to end the conflict. And it's not really clear how the sort of calls for criminal accountability contribute towards that. Um, I mean, more broadly, though, on accountability, and I need to be a bit careful how I frame this, but I mean, what, what do you make of the argument? I'm really interested in, in your views on this, that, the, that, for example, the International Criminal Court, um, you know, it sort of seems like an institution from, again, I don't want to be too harsh, uh, but, but sort of an institution from, from an, another era, a sort of era uh, in which our assumptions about the way the world was headed were, were, were very different. I mean, if you look at the disconnect now between the reach of international justice and the people that are actually responsible for tr- perpetrating the, wor- the world's worst violence, I mean, the disconnect between that has got so great that kind of it renders the whole exercise or it throws a, a kind of shadow over the whole exercise. I mean, I remember a few years ago hearing from the then uh, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, uh, Fatah Ben Souda, um, you know, about the big success they'd enjoyed in bringing to justice a mid to low level jihadist commander in the Sahel. I mean, and this was at a time when Russia was levelling Aleppo and the Saudis were pummeling Yemen with Western supplied weapons. And of course, the US can talk about accountability for Russia. But you know, it it has itself blocked any sort of involvement of the ICC, looking at what the US itself did in in Afghanistan, for example. So is it the ICC or criminal justice just something to be used rhetorically by uh, major powers? Uh, you know, against their against their rivals. Whereas in practice, the only people that can really be held accountable are, you know, warlords in parts of Africa that have fallen out of favour with their government and and don't have strong support from anywhere else in the in the in the international system. Is that what international justice has 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 become, rather than a way to you know as it was originally conceived of again in an era where there were very different assumptions about the way the world was moving. Um, uh, uh, as it was initially thought of, a, 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 a tool to sort of hold the powerful to account. Yeah, Richard, I, I, I sometimes wonder for policymakers and and uh, those involved in in observing or commenting on conflict of our generation, how much is it about grappling with and dealing with the idea that the '90s uh, did not bear fruit. They did not turn out to represent a vision of the world that was real and that was reflective of reality, including perhaps in the 90s. And also, I think the question of who who believed in that future, who thought that was the future, and how many people were being left out of that vision um, that ended up reasserting themselves uh, not long after. But I think, I mean, I am the perhaps in the minority here that I am an international lawyer who is not going to respond to your comments by defending um, international criminal law and international criminal justice. And I think there are those who are arguing that the solution to the problem you identify is a special tribunal for uh, Russian actors. So to get around the problem of ICC jurisdiction, um, on the crime of aggression for Russia by setting up a special tribunal. And, you know, in a way, this is this is either the pathology or the genius of international criminal law is that there will always be groups of international lawyers who will say, 
there is a way that we could create an institution that will deliver justice. It'll just be ad hoc or special or on the moon or it'll do something else. And to me, all of those responses do not respond to the criticism you are making, which is that this is a political failure and that the political failure to be able to have a system that ensures accountability for those who are perpetrating the most violence in the world is not going to be solved through legal machinations. It is not going to be solved by creating new rules or new forms of jurisdiction. It has to be solved by addressing that that political uh, problem that you are raising. And so I think um, it will be fascinating to see how the U.S. responds to the very predictable short-term and I think long-term reaction to their having raised this this call for Russian accountability, which is whether the U.S. is itself willing to be subject to that accountability. So I'm fascinated to see where this conversation leads us, but I am deeply pessimistic that the answers will be found from within international criminal law. Uh, So I'm afraid I have failed in my duties as an international lawyer here uh, to to defend the system. And I will say there are many, many incredibly committed, I think, deeply morally responsible people who are involved in these institutions and who, who I think do believe that this kind of justice not only uh, offers victims a sense of accountability, but also may may deter future uh, leaders from from using force or from committing war crimes. Um, I, I'm afraid I just think that they are uh, misguided. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Ethiopia, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at crisisgroup. Thank you very much to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, and Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch with us, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, feel free to leave us a question, a comment, give a positive rating or review if you like the show, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.